The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Marshall, how are you? Um, a beautiful sunny day here in California. Uh, just finished walking my dog. Forgive the non-professional attire, but you see me dressed professionally enough on TV, right? Um, good to have you with us today. Olivier Knox is in the house. I'm very excited about that. He is a good friend of mine, personally and professionally, and uh, we're going to get his take. Very, very brilliant man, and uh, we have a lot to talk about. Uh, but first up on this Tuesday, let's kick it off and check what is ripped. Some public health experts and scientists now believe that the United States is unlikely to reach herd immunity. Why do you think? Isn't it funny? I tweeted the other day, um, everybody on the right or Trump supporters want wants Joe Biden, President Biden, to give Donald Trump kudos and props for getting the, vi- the vaccine. But so many of his supporters won't get the damn vaccine. And that's one of the reasons we're unlikely to reach herd immunity. The people are like, I'm not, I'm not going to get vaccine, you know? I don't know what's in there, but, you know, what are they eating? <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry I'm going to get in so much trouble, but if you eat in a chicken McNugget or a hot dog, do you know what's in there? Okay? No. Take the damn vaccine. And that the coronavirus will become a manageable threat that circulates for years. That's what's being reported by the New York Times. Uh, many emerging viruses, by the way, this is why it matters. Many emerging viruses become part of the viral ecology. The number of hospitalizations and deaths that endemic COVID-19 causes could depend on several factors, including how often people are reinfective, vaccine effectiveness, and the adoption and mutation of that virus. So what are they saying out there? Quote, people were getting confused and thinking you're never going to get the infections down until you reach this mystical level of herd immunity, whatever that number is. Well, that's White House Chief Medical Examiner, Dr. Anthony Fauci. That's what he did tell the New York Times. He goes on to say, quote, that's why we stopped using herd immunity in the classic sense. I'm saying forget that for a second. You vaccinate enough people, the infections are going to go down. Uh, According to Rustam uh, Antia, an evolutionary biologist at Emory University in Atlanta, not according to Joe Rogan, a talk show host, and not according to politicians who don't have MDs after their name, or MDs who maybe shouldn't, like Rand Paul. Uh, Quote, the virus is unlikely to go away, but we want to do all we can to check that it's likely to become a mild infection. You know, it's sort of like, hmm, do I believe an evolutionary biologist at Emory University, or do I believe a talk show host? I am not going to give you medical advice. By the way, I live in California where we're hoping that at the end of today, we will be three days in a row with zero COVID cases. We have had two. So much for, you know, poo-pooing our lockdowns, poo-pooing our governor's decisions to correlate decisions regarding opening and social distancing and mask mandates with ICU numbers. 
Uh, it you know looks like California's winning, winning, right? We've got the lowest COVID rate in the United States, and that's not just for one day. And we have zero cases, zero yesterday, zero day before, hopefully zero today. Recall that, baby. Recall that. Let's rip another. Let's rip another. Thank you. The White House today warned states that unordered coronavirus vaccine supply will be made available to other states. Uh, Jeff Zients, Biden's uh, COVID-19 response coordinator, told that to The Washington Post. Now, the shift in vaccine allocation, which comes after the administration reached its 100 million shots in the arm milestone, that would be the most significant shift in domestic distribution since Biden took office. By the way, the president has said by July 4th, he wants 70 percent to be able to claim and say that 70 percent of Americans have shots in the arm. Uh, I've had one. I'm getting my second after Mother's Day because I had Pfizer. I had zero side effects. I've heard the second shot can really stick it to you, uh, no pun intended, uh, and, and and kick you on your arse. So uh, I don't want to be sick for Mother's Day because my, my my kids and husband have something planned. So right after Mother's Day, I'm going to get uh, number two, and hopefully I, I won't be missing uh, work or get too, you know, get too sick or have any side effects. Some people have none or just a sore arm or a little sniffle. Uh, the White House will add unordered vaccines into a federal bank, and these will be available to states where demand for vaccines outpace supply. Uh, states can order up to 50% above their usual weekly allocation, which still will be determined by the state's portion of the overall U.S. population. So it's going to be, uh, you know, based uh, proportionally, right? Based on population. That sounds fair. Let's rip another. Now, something that he said he was going to do in February, he also mentioned he was going to do it when he campaigned. So please don't think that the progressives are pushing him to do it. President Biden will raise the cap on refugees to 62,500 this fiscal year. He announced that yesterday. And by the way, this is just in line with what he said. That number, exactly, 62,500. He said it in February. Google it. You don't believe me. Go look it up. Um and that they were at 15,000 until they got things a little bit more controlled at the border. And by the way, I also want to remind you, when you see this number of people apprehended at the border, also look at how many of those people were returned to where they came from. So this move comes after a wave of outrage over his initial decision. He was going to keep the Trump era ceiling of 15,000 admission in place. But I get mad at that kind of reporting because if you look at and do your homework in the research, he never said he was going to keep it at one at 15,000, excuse me. He said his goal was 62,500. They were going to be doing it. They, and Jen Psaki said she just didn't know when. She echoed the same thing that the president said. And he never said he was going to keep the Trump era ceiling of 15,000. He just was doing it at that time. Look, he just got into office. It was less than 100 days. And he needed to, like, you know, assess the situation at the border, which is a crisis. And, you know, it, it has been, by the way, a crisis, uh, you know, on and off for 17 years. Um, so, you know, he, he's do, doing the right thing, in my opinion. You don't you, just because you say a number, you don't throw that number out there. You move to that number when you think that number can be handled. By the way, we have more than double the number of refugees globally than ever in the history of the world. More than double. Because I know when you think refugees, you're all thinking of everybody, you know, trying to come in through the southern border, through Mexico, from the triangle countries of Honduras, Guatemala. And uh, what's what's my third one? <laughs> um, you, you know what I mean? They're, 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 they're not. They're not all coming from, you know, those countries. Um, there, there are people that are still, you know, displaced, trying to come to the United States from, you know, Syria or, you know, you know, people that have escaped from North Korea 
I mean, the list goes on more than double globally. Well, this move comes after a wave of outrage, like I said. Uh, it is important to take this action today, he said, to remove any lingering doubt in the minds of refugees around the world who have suffered so much and were anxiously waiting for their new lives to begin. Now, the new admissions cap will expand the United States capacity to admit refugees so that we can reach the goal of 125,000 refugee admissions, he said, that I intend to set for the coming fiscal year, end quote. But something else that the Biden administration wants to do that we really need to do, and this is not political. One of the reasons so that you don't uh, that you don't misunderstand, and I am right on this, I am right that I'm right that I'm right. You cannot apply for asylum unless you reach the United States. And one of the things they want to change is being able to apply for asylum in your own country. Now, I know you say, oh, no, you can apply at the embassy and the consulate. No, you can't. Call them, ask them, I have. You can't. Okay? State Department, call them, ask them, I have. You can't. And that's one of the problems and one of the reasons you have so many people who come here and go, I want, I want asylum, I want asylum, because they are at the border already, right? And they think it'll be harder to turn them away. And that's how come we have this crisis. And one of the reasons that we need a major overhaul of our immigration system is just that alone. Right. Then you have DACA recipients. Then you have the undocumented workers that have been in this country longer than some of us have been alive. Right. You have people at the southern border, refugees that want to come in from other places. And then you have the majority of people that are here illegally that have just overstayed their worker student visas. That system needs to be overhauled as well. This is not something that a wall will fix. This is not something that sending money to the triangle countries alone will fix. And so, by the way, raising that number is not going to have uh, thousands or millions of, of people more at our borders, as some on the right would maintain. Um, and uh, like he said, um, he wants to reach the goal of 125,000 refugee admissions. That is what he has set for the coming fiscal year. He goes on to say, quote, the sad truth is that we will not achieve 62,500 admissions this year. We're working quickly to undo the damage of the last four years. It will take time, but that work is already underway. So again, 62,500 is a number and a goal. Won't be achieved or attained or reached this year. Uh, by the way, the president walked back his initial decision to keep the historically low 15,000 cap. It was panned by Democrats. But again, if they listen to what he said, not just the number. He never meant that number to be set in stone. That's what my research shows me. I'm Leslie Marshall. That's what's ripped from the headlines part one. We're going to take a break. Come back. Get ripped from the headlines part two. We'll be back with you right after this. Don't go away. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Leslie Marshall, welcome, welcome back, and thank you for listening uh, wherever you listen on radio stream podcast and watching on Twitter's Periscope, LinkedIn Live, YouTube Live, Facebook Live. Thank you for joining us uh, today. Uh, let's continue what is ripped. Lines. Two broad coalitions of companies and executives plan to release letters on Tuesday today calling for expanded voting access in Texas. So that's wading into the contentious debate over Republican legislators proposed new restrictions on balloting after weeks of relative silence from the business community in that state. Now, one letter comes from a group of large corporations. These are big 
companies you've heard of, I've heard of, uh, HP, Hewlett-Packard, Microsoft, uh, Unilever, Salesforce, Patagonia, and Sodexo, as well as local companies and chambers of commerce and represents uh, the first major coordinated effort among businesses in the state of Texas to take action against the voting proposals. Now, the letter under the banner of a new group called Fair Elections Texas, although it stops short of criticizing the two voting bills that are now advancing through the state's Republican-controlled legislature, but opposes, quote, any changes that would restrict eligible voters' access to the ballot. In a separate letter, also expected to be released today, and signed by more than 100 Houston executives, it goes further, it directly criticizes the proposed legislation and equates the efforts with, quote, voter suppression. The letter was organized by a breakaway faction of the Greater Houston Partnership. That's the equivalent of a citywide chamber of commerce. Remember, Houston is the country's fourth largest city and came after a month of intense debate within the organization over how to respond to the voting proposals. Together, the letters signify a sudden shift in how the business community approaches the voting bills in Texas. Until now, American Airlines and Dell Technologies, those were the only major corporations to publicly speak out about the legislation in Texas. And after doing so, they quickly found themselves threatened by Republicans in Austin, the state capital. But with a varied coalition that numbers well into the dozens now, companies are hoping that a collective voice willing to apply pressure at the state level could break through and sway some of the Republican legislators or, le legislators, or at least the thinking of some of those who may be wavering on the bills, uh, especially if any of those corporations write checks to those Republican legislators, just saying. Legislators, not legislatures. Let's rip another. Attorney General Merrick Garland is requesting 85, by the way, can I just say sidebar? If uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Breyer retires, Merrick Garland has got to be Joe Biden's pick. Do y'all agree with me? I mean, that's his, I want him to take his rightful place on the, you know, Supreme Court throne, if you will. I, I, I just, there we go. Back to this. Attorney General Merrick Garland is requesting $85 million in additional funding from Congress. He wants to bolster the Justice Department and FBI's efforts to combat domestic terrorism. That's according to a copy of his opening remarks before a House Appropriations Subcommittee. Now, Garland, the FBI director, Christopher Wray, and intelligence agencies have repeatedly warned that violent extremists pose an elevated threat against the country this year. The attorney general has pledged to crack down on violence linked to white supremacists and to these right-wing militia groups, and he has made prosecuting these involved in the January 6th Capitol siege his top priority. He told Congress in February that, quote, we are facing a more dangerous period than when we faced than we faced in Oklahoma City back in 1995 when an extremist attacked 168 people and injured over, uh, killed, that attack killed 168 people and injured over 680 others. The Justice Department is seeking a $45 million increase in funding for the FBI for domestic terrorism investigations, $40 million for, million for U.S. attorneys to manage those domestic terrorism cases. I think it's money well spent. Garland, you can use my tax dollars happily for that. Garland will also ask Congress to increase the agency's civil rights funding by $33 million, in part to help protect voting rights and prosecute hate crimes. And the Department of Justice also wants an additional $232 million to combat gun violence, $304 million to go toward community-oriented policing programs, and to address systemic inequities. That all sounds good to me. I like that. Check, check, check. Let's rip another. General Mark Milley 
chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and senior military advisor to the president, said yesterday is now open to a proposal that would take decisions on sexual assault prosecutions out of his hands. He says uh, failure to address sexual assault has dogged the military for years. It became a national issue, as you know, after Vanessa uh, Guilin's death last year. Uh, and Billy's comments will likely add weight to the call for change. Uh, the proposed changes that he referred to were recommended by an independent review panel. Uh, he did not endorse them, but he said the military's issues surrounding sexual assault have persisted far too long. He said, quote, we have been hit. We've been at it for years and we haven't effectively moved the needle. We have too. We must. And part of the shift in opinion is due to junior service members and their lack, lack of faith in the fairness of sexual assault case outcomes. That's what he said. He also noted he is reserving final judgment until military leadership has reviewed the recommendations. He says, quote, that's really bad for our military if that's true and survey and that evidence indicate it is true. Uh, he, he said that's a really bad situation if the enlisted force, the junior enlisted force, lacks confidence in their chain of command to be able to effectively deal with the issue of sexual assault. Translation, if a woman is sexually assault, assaulted, she's fearful to go to her commanding officer, who is typically male uh, or, or statistically male, uh, to report on a male or males that the harassment has come from, right? The commission delivered its initial recommendations to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin last month. He's expected to give service leaders roughly a month to review and, and to respond. That's what the Associated Press is reporting. Now, for certain special victims' crimes, including sexual assault and sexual harassment, designated independent judge advocates should report to a civilian-led office of the chief special victim prosecutor to decide whether to charge someone and if that charge should proceed to a court-martial. That's what the panel said. Top military leaders like Milley have vehemently opposed such a move for years. They've argued in the past that the authority to discipline service members should only lie within the military, more specifically, with the commanders. Now, over 20,000 service members, but he's changed his tune, over 20,000 service members said they experienced some type of sexual assault in 2018. Did you hear me? Over 20,000. It's not just women. Um, only a third of those members filed a formal report. <clears throat> Just a reminder, outside the military, one in 10 rapes goes reported. That means 90 or more percent of rapists go free. Let's rip another. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Republican from the state I live in, in California, he said today that House Republicans have expressed concerns with Representative Liz Cheney's role in the GOP, specifically GOP leadership, suggesting that her days as a lawmaker from Wyoming as a leader are numbered. Uh, she is the party's third ranking member. Now, having already survived one challenge to her leadership post back in February, she's once again found herself increasingly alienated and isolated within the GOP caucus over her criticism of former President Donald Trump. I got to tell you something. I don't care if it's left or right. I don't care if it's Donald Trump, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton. No party. No party should have one individual as their God. No party should make their party about just that one person. I mean, if Republicans don't see that, right, they lost the Senate over it, they lost the White House over it, and they lost some seats in the House over it. And I know everybody thinks that, you know, because historically the party in power loses seats in the House in the next election, I'm just not sure that's going to be the case, and I hope not, in 2022. In recent days, the calls for Cheney to be removed as House Republican Conference Chair have grown louder. 
because she has stood up to Trump's continued lies about his election loss. I gotta tell you something, win or lose, you gotta respect the woman for being brave and being honest. I'm Leslie Marshall, that's what's ripped from the headlines. Olivier Knox is our guest, he's up next. I hope you'll stay with us. How are you doing? Happy Tuesday. Welcome or welcome back. I'm Leslie Marshall. And as I mentioned, our guest today is Olivier Knox. Now, Olivier is the new anchor of the Daily 202 at the Washington Post. It's a midday newsletter about politics and policy. He joined the Post from SiriusXM, where he was chief Washington correspondent. He also hosted a live three-hour show each weeknight focused on politics, foreign policy, and quirky corners of the federal government. Before that, he reported for Yahoo News and hosted a weekly Yahoo-branded radio show. And from July 2018 to July 2019, he was president of the White House Correspondents Association. Olivier got his start as a reporter at Agence France Press, for which he eventually covered all eight years of the Bush administration, George W. You can find The Daily 202 by visiting tinyurl.com forward slash The Daily 202. Also follow Olivier on Twitter, his handle at Onox, O-K-N-O-X. Olivier, good to have you back with us, and it's it's good to have you on the show. Um I, I've actually uh, visited uh, the Daily 202. Like it. Good job. Keep it going. Thank I appreciate you. it. Thanks very much. Really appreciate it. We um, have a lot going on with this current administration. And, and for anybody that wanted to call him Sleepy Joe, I don't know when the guy's sleeping because he really is doing or trying to uh, do and accomplish a, a lot. Um, so let's talk about this uh, go big agenda. And and uh, over the past month and a half, um you know, you uh, talk about a piece that your colleague Jeff Stein wrote, right? Quote, we need the government. Biden's $1.9 trillion relief plan reflects seismic shifts in U.S. politics. Um, it, it is the, you know, it's kind of funny because so many people that say they're, they, they hate big government love cashing their, you know, stimulus checks, their Social Security checks, their <laughs> Medicare sure. checks, um, yep. or they feel the government should provide health care for them. Um, so talk to us about this, uh, this shift with uh, big government and and talk to us about this price tag attached to that shift. Well, this was such a smart piece by Jeff, uh, looking at Americans' attitudes towards government in the pandemic. And what he found was an acceleration of existing trends towards Americans wanting and expecting more services from the federal government than they used to. So I went back and I dug into some of the old older numbers, went back as far as uh, December of 1995 and found a pretty discernible trend, you know, back in December of 1995, so about a month before Bill Clinton gives a State of the Union in which he declares the era of big government is over. Uh, Americans back then are saying, yeah, you know, I'd rather have a small government, fewer benefits, fewer taxes, lower taxes um, than I would a large government with many services. What we've seen over the past 20 plus years is a shift, a dramatic shift. In fact, a flip where now more Americans, according to pollsters, are looking for more services from the federal government than ever before. Now, it does depend on which polls you're looking at. But even in the Washington Post poll, you can see a discernible shift towards the, the larger government with more services over the smaller government with fewer services. And I think that's really important for understanding the Biden administration, uh, in part because, you know, he's proposing. I mean, the, the joke is that he's the six trillion dollar man, uh, you know, not not the bionic man of my childhood, but the six trillion dollar <laughs> man. Lee Majors. Um, yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. So, you know, it, it, it this help, helps to explain, sort of, helps to explain the politics of his proposals and why they seem to be popular, even though Republicans inside the Beltway really dislike them. You know, it's interesting. Um, I, I would imagine, obviously, the pandemic plays into this, where people are like, I need the government to get me a vaccine. 
I need the government to tell me what to do, right? I mean, you know, whether it's your state government, right, uh, with regard to where you can go, if you have to wear a mask, how many feet apart, you know, do you stand, uh, you know, can can you go back to work and, and guidelines for business owners and things like that. Um, did, did this shift and, and change in attitudes among Americans you know, we already had it on the left, but grow more so on the left and even, you know, people on the right having this opinion. Did this happen because of the pandemic or were these attitudes changing going into the pandemic during the Trump administration prior to COVID-19? It's a great question. Um, first thing I would say is I don't know how many Americans are looking for government to tell them what to do necessarily, certainly not on the right, but in terms of goodies. Yeah, you bet. You know, there's this really important time, there's this moment in Donald Trump's 2016 campaign when he comes out and he says, by the way, I'm not going to touch your Social Security. I'm not going to touch your Medicare. I'm not going to touch your Medicaid. It's in the mouth of a Democratic candidate. It's a meh. But remember that the Republican consensus on those things was that entitlements were going to have to be seriously reined in, curtailed in order to tackle long term deficits and the national debt. So Donald Trump broke with that. And then during his presidency, in order to help farmers, uh, uh, endure the pain of his trade war, he sent tens of billions of dollars in assistance from Washington to the agricultural sector. So it's pre-pandemic. What Jeff found is that the pandemic accelerated these trends. And what I looked at suggests that these trends have actually been there for, for many years before COVID-19 hit our shores. And right now, when you talk about uh, the government, I mean, there are a lot of things being proposed in different plans from the Biden administration and from Democrats um, that Americans are liking. They're not just liking, they're liking in, you know, big numbers, you know, and, and, and you're seeing numbers, you know, among Republicans. If you look at universal pre-K, um, if you look at paid family leave, right? I mean, you know, it, it's not just dads who are Democrats that want to stay home with their kids and be able to get a paycheck for it. And these are just two examples of that. Um, can you talk about some other examples that, you know, in your research, you found that, you know, people, you know, really want, you know, like you said, the goodies from the government? Sure. And and that's a little I, I, I that sounded probably more glib than it should be wanting services <laughs> and help from the federal government. Sure. There's a there's a very good example from early March when the United States Senate which you know can't agree on what time it is, voted 92 to 7 to extend the Paycheck Protection Act. Now, irrespective of the merits of the Paycheck, Paycheck Protection Act, it is remarkable to note that kind of lopsided vote, right? We don't see, we don't see a lot of 92 to 7 votes on matters of policy these days. We certainly don't see them in the Biden era. But here's a proposal that won widespread bipartisan support. And it did that because um, you know, if you're a small business owner, a restaurant owner, say in Florida, you need this. You need this help from Washington. If you're a small business owner in Indiana, you probably need this help from Washington. So there's there's this consensus um, uh, among the among maybe not inside the Beltway, although in this case there was that that yeah we we expect help from Washington. We want help from Washington. So that's that's a really good example of partisan and even ideological differences melting away when it's uh, when it's a question of, you know, paying the utility bills and putting food on the table. And also, if we go beyond that, not just things that are, you know, in my house or in my backyard, um, you know, directly, you know, a business owner, you know, or an employee can keep their job because they got the PPP loan and they can pay their payroll. Um, but when you look at things like infrastructure, right? right? I mean, there are people that are saying, yes, I, I you know, not just roads and bridges, um, after Flint, a lot more people aware of and concerned about 
clean drinking water, right? Um, right? After Texas, a lot of people concerned about updated and well-maintained electrical grids. And then, of course, uh, with so many people working from home and children being uh, schooled online in New York City, just announced no more snow days. When it's a snow day, you're going to go back to virtual learning because right. now we know how to do it. Uh, people go, you know, we need uh, broadband. Um, are That's these right. other areas that you would consider, you know, in that goodie bag? Boy, I, I, if if the United States Congress somehow does not find some way to fund a a, a, a significant expansion of access to broadband internet, notably in rural America, um, I, I may just go stick my head in a fan because it has it has enormous bipartisan support. Um, now that's something that had support before the pandemic, but that support has escalated in the pandemic. You know, you hear these stories, uh, Leslie, of of uh, people driving to parking lots outside of businesses that have. Um, that, that have Wi-Fi. So in my yes. neighborhood, sometimes you'll see people parked in the library parking lot because that's where the strongest Wi-Fi is, right? So that would be, it would, I mean, it's, I'm not putting it past these people, but that would be a real surprise to me if they failed to do that. The difference on infrastructure is where Joe Biden is expanding it to people services. So at home care, for example, there's a difference there. So what we're probably gonna see is um, this big 2.3 or so trillion dollar infrastructure plan broken into two pieces. One, traditional infrastructure, Although I think water is probably on there, broadband definitely is. And then a second wave, which would be a little more uh, the progressive priorities, at-home care, elderly care, um, uh, uh, family leave and the like. And of course, the you know both, like you said, have the you know, have majority of support, you know, and and the latter, you know, affects the people, you know, at home. Um, do do you think these you know changing and shifting attitudes? Um, well, we know what we have a, we're going to take a break. I don't want to ask you a question. So you can't <laughs> answer. And, you know, that cliffhanger thing, you know, we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk more with our guest, Olivier Knox. We'll talk more with you. Don't go away. In the meantime, go to Twitter and follow him there. Go to O Knox, O-K-N-O-X. And also during, during our break, check out uh, tinyurl.com forward slash the daily 202. Uh, he is the host. He is the anchor. Check it out and see what it's all about. We'll be back right after this. We are back. Welcome or welcome back. And we are back with Olivier Knox, new anchor of the Daily 202 at the Washington Post, a midday newsletter about politics and policy. Please check out the Daily 202 by visiting tinyurl.com forward slash the Daily 202 and follow Olivier at O-Knox, O-K-N-O-X. And we will be posting that on all our social media in case you didn't get it or, you know, you're driving and you can't write it down. Olivier, thank you for holding and welcome back. Um, I, I wanted to ask if this shift in uh, attitude toward government programs and benefits that people receive or goodies from these programs can explain uh, the approval numbers that we see that Joe Biden has. I mean, he's definitely enjoying very high uh, you know, approval rating. The majority of Americans are approving of the job he's doing in every area except immigration right now. Right. I I. To a degree, yes. So the way that the White House, uh, the official officials of the White House describe it is they know that they're going to be judged uh, as early as the midterms based on his handling of the pandemic and his handling of the economy. So getting shots in arms, you know, he set these goals. Uh, you could say he under-promised and over-delivered, fine. Uh, but he got more than 200 million shots in arms. Um, so he, got, he gets good marks on the pandemic. 
On the economy, you know, he delivered those payments, direct payments of up to $1,400 to tens of millions of Americans. Uh, that earned him a fair amount of goodwill as well. So you could make the case that government delivering on these two fronts has helped him uh, stay above water. You know, he's not as popular, with the exception of Donald Trump, who never cracked 50 percent. He's not as popular as a lot of his modern predecessors. But yes, I think you can probably connect uh, government delivering on both the pandemic and the economy with uh, Joe Biden's better than 50 percent job approval. Um, I, I want to talk about you had mentioned Bill Clinton and you had mentioned numbers and it was more like, you know, let the government be the government, you know, we'll do our own thing. And that has certainly uh, changed. Um, and right now, when you look at the numbers, um, you know, you, you guys have, you know, written out and easy research for me um, since 1988, that that smaller camp has has dipped below 50 percent, that smaller camp that wants uh, fewer services from the government. They don't want a government as large. Um, it's also the biggest large number uh, since June of 2008. And at that time, that's when we were, you know, coming out of our financial crisis. Right. What has changed since this started pre-pandemic? So it's not just a result of the pandemic. What has changed in the attitude of the people? I mean, is it is it demographics? Is it economy? And I, I say that because Bill Clinton obviously had an extremely robust, booming economy that we were living under. Um, is it fear? What is it? It's a great question. So the the, the dynamics that that we're seeing are. Um, there are some there are some uh, uh, contradictions here because we are seeing a decline in trust in the federal government and a <laughs> deep seated loathing for the United States Congress. Um, at the same time, people are expecting and wanting and desiring more services. If there is a quick and easy explanation for this, I haven't found it. Although you are right, I think, in alluding to crises in alluding to the 2007-2008 economic crisis, um, in alluding, I guess, maybe to um, H1N1 flu outbreak, alluding to the, the, uh, the, the pandemic as well. Most of the shift has occurred on the, on the liberal side of the ledger. Conservatives are still pretty resistant to the idea of a larger government, but they're not as resistant as they used to be. Um, so I haven't found a, a quick and convenient explanation, but I, but I do think that these kinds of crises, I mean, look, there's an amazing irony in, in the vaccine response to this pandemic, and that is that the United States used the power of our central government to motivate and incentivize the private sector to develop these vaccines, right? Operation Warp Speed, okay? European Union, um, ostensibly more inclined to socialistic outcomes relied on the private sector. And so you have, and they're way behind. And so you have this weird contradiction of the United States, which is obviously much more free market oriented than, than Europe, uh, relying on the federal government and its powers to generate this positive outcome. And the Europeans going to the private sector and, and falling short. Um, I only note that because I don't, I don't have a quick and convenient explanation. Um, again, the, the better part of the shift has been on the, on the Democratic, the liberal, the progressive side of the ledger. Um, but it's, 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 really, it's really kind of remarkable. And I go back to that thing that Donald Trump did in his campaign. You know, uh, Remember that the Paul Ryan wing of the Republican Party was for trimming these entitlements. And one of the ways that Donald Trump stood out as a candidate is by saying, nuh-uh, we're not touching this. Um, I think he read the moment in a way that some of the traditional Republicans did not. 
And, uh, you know, when, when you look at those um, on the right, especially, mm-hmm. I mean, for ages, and Republicans still talk about it, although they seem to forget whenever they spend a lot of money, um, that there, there seems to be a, a, a fear or a hesitation uh, about federal spending, right, and about the government spending, you know, out of control. Has the pandemic uh, made that less of a priority for some people, even though there's obviously still a large number of Americans that fret about that? Well, as you say, this is a, oh, what's a good, what's a polite way to put it? This is a convenient turn for Republicans. Um, They certainly were not concerned about the national debt and deficit spending um, when Donald Trump was sending tens of billions of dollars to farmers hurt by his trade war. They certainly weren't concerned about deficit deficits and national debt um, when they passed the 2017 um, Republican uh, tax cut bill. Um, they certainly weren't concerned about deficit in the debt when they expanded defense spending. Um, they rediscovered all these things when, um, when, Joe, when, first of all, when it looked like Joe Biden was going to win. You know, you st- first started seeing some stirrings on that front in, uh, in before the election, and then now, of course, now you hear about it a lot more. And yeah, it it tends to be the case that Republicans use deficits in the debt to beat up Democratic presidents and that they tend to forget them when Republicans uh, are, are in office. So when you mentioned office, I know you guys uh, said that Dick Cheney uh, reportedly insisted 20 years ago, uh, it, it's true, Ronald Reagan proved deficits don't matter. And, and, and then you talk about how Reagan in his farewell address said, quote, I've been asked if I have any regrets. Well, I do. The deficit is one. Just right. showing that politicians uh, have different memories uh, on the right as, as maybe they do on the left. I want to talk about um, uh, the tax plans, Biden's tax plans, and uh, the uh, attacks on the, uh, the tax plans, and obviously the allegations or accusations that it's class uh, warfare. Uh, Republicans also like to uh, paint Democrats uh, as socialist and communist sometimes. Um, President Biden, uh, in his first speech uh, to Congress, um, he, it seemed he was trying to preempt those Republican attacks yeah. on his plans, right, to remake the U.S. economy and the tax increase that he's proposed uh, to pay for them and, and to show and to point out they're not socialism, they're not class warfare. Do you think the president was successful in doing that? In other words, who, who's speaking louder, the Democrats on the left, that this is not socialism and class warfare or the Republicans on the right accusing them of, them of such? It's a great question, but I would I would steer your attention to uh, centrist Democrats who are actually going to be a really, really important constituency here because they as long as they don't line up with the rest of Democrats, then Joe Biden has to make compromises. Right. Because he could he could drive these proposals through the United States, through the House by pure majority, through the Senate, through budget reconciliation, which only requires um, 50 votes with the vice president uh, casting the tiebreaker. if those centrist Democrats don't line up, and they, by the way, they don't, it doesn't look like they are lining up. If they don't line up behind the White House, if they don't line up behind the rest of the Democrats, then Joe Biden does uh, have, to, uh, have to make more compromises. So I don't know yet. I don't know yet who speaks more loudly. The president obviously had the biggest audience, even though the ratings were down, the biggest audience that any American politician can expect this year, barring something going horribly wrong. Um, but it's, I think it's a little bit too soon to say. I don't think it fundamentally altered uh, the dynamics inside the Beltway, and I'm not sure we've seen good public opinion polling for whether they move the needle outside the Beltway. 
Do you, do you, I'm just curious, uh, you know, Olivier, because, you know, we're both in politics and media. Why do you think the ratings were uh, so low? I mean, clearly, Joe Biden is not the type of speaker Bill Clinton, Barack Obama were on the left or even Donald Trump on the right. Well, the stakes are obviously really, really high, which is why I tend to resist using the word boring, um, but conventional, right? He's a much more conventional politician in his style. Now, he proposed a sweeping transformation of the relationship between Americans and their government. I don't mean to suggest that he didn't do that. Um, but for a lot of people, you know, um, I, uh, there's a Republican consultant who joked to me in spring of 2017, he said, the winning Democratic slogan in 2020 will be something like, I swear to God, there'll be days you forget I even exist. And the idea was that Americans would have the luxury of forgetting about politics because politics mm -hmm. was going to be less tumultuous, uh, less volatile uh, than in the Trump era. Low bar, I, I, I will admit. But I think in, in some cases, a lot of people just sort of feel like they're getting what they expected. Um, they're getting a style that they expected. They don't have to tune in to see, OMG, what is he going to say next? I think that's part of it. The other part is what we have are TV ratings. We don't necessarily know how many people tune this in, read about it on in the newspaper, looked Online. at Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. We don't really know yet what those what those numbers were. And also, it wasn't the State of the Union. You know, people go, you know, uh, the State of the Union, we've got to tune in. You know what I mean? It's not, and, and it, it really, some people say he hasn't had enough time. A lot of people go, why do we have a 100-day marker? It's really not enough time to do a lot. You know, to, I mean, you can put a lot out there, but it, it's not going to be implemented by that time. Olivier, love having you. I uh, love The Daily 202. Everybody check it out, tinyurl.com forward slash The Daily 202. Olivier is the host, the anchor of that. Follow him on Twitter, by the way, at Onox, O-K-N-O-X. I'm Leslie Marshall. Marky Mark Grimaldi is our executive producer. Thank you for being with us, whether you're listening, watching, or whenever you're listening and watching. We appreciate you. Thank you.